This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Thanks very much, everybody. So straight into, um, yeah, I'll just hand over straight to Ben and Gareth, who are under the influence. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, can everyone hear us? Great. Well, thank you everyone for coming along today. This is kind of amazing to see this many people in the room. So uh, today, Ben and I are going to be talking about dark patterns and the powers of persuasive design. But before we get started, uh, most of us are UXs in the room, and we all love a bit of a story. So I thought we'd kick things off today uh, by telling you a story about how small design decisions can have big impacts. So, this handsome chap here you see is our GM at Thirst Studios, Damien. Now, we all love Damien at Thirst Studios. He's witty, uh, he's always there to throw in a killer dad joke, and he's really great at his job too. Now, apparently, GMs need computers, so when he started, we got him this. This is the new MacBook 12-inch. So Damien's off, uh, out, often out on site with clients, so a powerful, light, and sexy laptop seemed appropriate. Now, when Damien finally got this thing out of the box, there was a little bit of a problem. So it only has the one USB-C port. How was Damien going to plug in his monitor or his keyboard or charge his phone? So in short, at this point, Damien was faced with an unexpected choice. One little design decision by Apple had meant that he either had to go ahead and buy an $130 adapter or he needed to change the way he works. So, resigned to this fact, Damien ordered the adapter and got down to setting up his computer. Now, 15 minutes later, Damien needs to call a client and his phone's about to die. So he obviously can't plug in his phone to his new fancy computer. He borrows a port from a neighbour's computer and goes ahead to make the call. Now, as he does this, a little screen comes up asking him to trust this new computer. And being busy, he absentmindedly clicks yes and makes the call. Now, unfortunately, with the way Apple's ecosystem works, that gives Damien's colleague access to all his data and images. Some things that can't be unseen are seen. And long story short, we had to fire Damien. Now, we're going to get back to that story in just a moment, but first I thought I'd just introduce us. I'm Ben, this is Gareth. We work at First Studios. It's a little UX studio here in Melbourne. Uh, and what we want to talk to you about for the next 20 minutes is exactly that kind of thing. So the kind of small um, design decisions and the far-reaching impacts that they can have on users, whether intended or not. So we better just get back to David and say the last part of that story isn't actually true. We, he does still work with us. We haven't fired him. Um, but what we're looking at here is a design decision that was made by Apple, either with really good intent, uh, maybe to progress to a new kind of all wireless ecosystem that they're planning, or maybe with darker, sort of consciously bad intent, maybe to push for an upswing in peripheral sales, maybe. Um, now, at the very least, design decisions like this <clears throat> can cause a bit of annoyance and cost users some cash. But at worst, it can have much more catastrophic uh, results. Now, we're not entirely sure that Apple really are doing intentional trickery here. I severely doubt it. But there are certainly plenty of examples where designs have indeed been put together intentionally to trick or deceive. 
And we're going to have a look at a few examples here today and then talk a little bit about the psychology behind it too. Now, in the online world, uh, designs that are intentionally put together to trick or deceive are known as dark patterns. And to create a dark pattern, designers need a really good understanding of cognitive science and human behaviours. And they're typically employed to benefit the company behind the design, to do things like increase sales or get better numbers of sign-ups. Now, we've become really interested in dark patterns of late, and more specifically, the convergence of uh, human psychology cognitive science and the patterns that are used to create them. So at a high level, you can start to think of dark patterns akin to the tricks of a dodgy car salesman, or in this case, a dodgy Java. Uh, in the digital space, these tricks are even easier. So you can't look under a website and see a telltale puddle of oil to identify a dark pattern. Instead, designers have gone ahead and created ingenious yet ethically questionable patterns to trick users into doing something that they otherwise wouldn't want to do. Now, luckily for us, the UX industry is fighting back against this kind of thing, and there's even a website dedicated to educating designers about questionable digital practices. So, darkpatterns.org, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of it, uh, lists 14 types of dark patterns, and rather than go through them all today, we'll show you just a few. So, we're going to start out with an example of the trick question dark pattern. So this is a really good local recent example that was featured in The Age just two months ago. The article refers to a guy called Simon, that's not his real name, who is someone that's really careful about uh, their personal information and they're very happy with the one bank that they were with. So um, Simon was really surprised when a rival bank, ANZ in this case, sent a personalised letter to his home asking him to become a Platinum member. And the article goes on to say that he, after some digging and hassling, got hold of somebody at ANZ who revealed that they got the details from VIDA, who are Australia's largest uh, credit reporting agency. And it turns out, a few weeks earlier, he had indeed been to the VIDA website to look for a credit check, do a personal credit check. And at the bottom of the form, I'm going to struggle with this, VIDA provided a pre-ticked checkbox that gives consent to VIDA and its corporate partners uh, to use that personal data for marketing purposes. Now, this is a bit of a cheap trick, but it's certainly no accident. What the designers are doing here is playing to the fact that people tend to scan forms um, and don't really read stuff properly, especially things like T's and C's at the bottom of a long form. And the inclusion of that big red button there just goes that little bit further to kind of try and distract the user away from the offending text. Now, this example is uh, the same thing, um, but totally taken to the next level. This is from the UK. I'm amazed that this is actually isn't illegal. This is essentially doing the same thing. It's pre-ticking a checkbox to say that you give consent uh, to be spammed for the rest of your life, basically. Um, but rather than try and distract the user, like in the previous example here, they've just hidden it completely behind a more information link. So you have to click that link in order to then find the offending text box and the, and the text. Okay, so another common dark practice that we wanted to show you today is the bait-and-switch trick. Now, an example you may be familiar with is... Candy Crush. So as you start playing Candy Crush, uh, the game conditions you to hit the big call to action in the centre of the screen for all key actions. So in this case, you'd hit play to start the game. Uh, you also hit play to start a new level. If you fail a level and you need to retry, you hit the uh, button in the same location. And if you're out of moves and not looking too closely, you can easily hit this button. The difference here is it's got a different function. So the UI has baited you into thinking that you know what this is going to do, i.e. start a new level, 
when in fact it's making you spend your virtual currency, taking you one step closer to an in-app purchase. Now, the designer in this case has taken advantage of human neuroscience. By conditioning users to continually hit that call to action in the centre of the screen, the mind, a user's mind recognises the pattern, and then over time it starts diverting conscious attention away from reading the button. Now, uh, let's look at something that's a little more devious. This one's called friend spamming. And an example we'd like to show you here today is LinkedIn's ad uh, connections controversy from 2011. Now, in this case, uh, when users were signing up for LinkedIn, they were told that uh, LinkedIn wouldn't store their password or email anyone without their consent. Uh, users agreed to put in some of their webmail contacts and use those to invite people to join LinkedIn. But instead, LinkedIn went on to uh, spam them multiple times on the user's behalf. And, and more than that, they actually wrote these emails as if they were coming from that user themselves. So very dodgy practices here. Now, LinkedIn have since been involved in a class action lawsuit on this and have agreed to a settlement of $13 million. So we're starting to talk big impacts here. Okay, so why do people do this? Why employ dark patterns? Why resort to such kind of underhanded trickery? Well, as commercial designers, we will all recognize that our allegiance is always pulled in many different directions. Our work is a constant balance of business needs, user needs, and obviously our desires as the designer. So if the pull is too much in one direction, then the solution starts to not really work for everybody. And dark patterns normally occur when the business needs are put higher than uh, all the other needs. Now, this can occur for a bunch of reasons, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that all of the designers in the room are evil. At least I certainly hope that's not the case. But uh, we are sometimes put in awkward positions. Um, maybe you're asked to do something unethical by a boss, or you need to meet a particular KPI. And it's very difficult in those situations for a designer to push back, and it's forcing, therefore, a bit of a moral and ethical dilemma. So this got us thinking. Is there another more ethical way to achieve these same kind of results? How can we, as designers... Uh, persuade people to do stuff without resorting to trickery? Well, it turns out that you can use those same principles of psychology that dark patterns employ, but to persuade users instead and invoke positive behaviour changes. So, use psychology not to trick, but to persuade. So how do we do this? Well, we thought we'd look a little more closely at human behaviour. And if we're going to look at human behaviour, persuasion, behaviour change... Uh, technology, we thought we should mention this guy, BJ Fogg. So BJ Fogg here is uh, the founder of the Persuasive Tech Lab at Stanford University in the States, and he's written a whole bunch of books on exactly this subject. What we wanted to talk about more specifically, though, was this, which is his Fogg behavior model. So the Fogg behavior model states that for a behavior to occur, there needs to be a sufficient level of both motivation and ability. So therefore, if you want to persuade somebody to do something with your digital product, you need to somehow make them want to do it and then make it really easy then for them to do that thing. So as a designer, it's very typical that we tend to uh, focus on the ability bit first because that's what we normally have most control over. So there are six basic elements of ability that you can see up here. Um, now, if you can affect those, then you're much more likely to get your user to do an intended behavior. And while this all might sound a bit complicated, it actually isn't all that hard, often to make something easier to do. And it doesn't often have to be a huge change in order to get quite a significant result. In fact, as UX designers, you are probably already doing a lot of this stuff already, just in making your designs more usable. So a great example of this is the $300 million button story. Is everyone kind of familiar with this 
story. If you're not, you should definitely check it out. It's, it's an awesome example. Told by Jared Spall, who's a really well-known UX guy from the States. Um, and this explains how by changing the label on a single button, uh, it helped increase an online retailer's profits by $300 million in a single year. Now, there's actually a little bit more to this story. It was actually about removing a barrier at the checkout point um, so that people didn't have to uh, register before they could go through and make the purchase. But even so, it's a great example of how making a really small change that improved the user's ability, uh, it had an enormous positive impact. Uber, can't, not have a, can't have a UX conference and not talk about Uber at some point, is another great example of hitting a sweet spot between motivation and ability really well. So this one actually probably wasn't all that hard. Um, the motivation's already really high here. Users just want to get a lift home. But where the old method of kind of hunting around drunk late at night trying to find and then hail a taxi was a bit difficult, uh, Uber have made it super easy through technology. Now, if you want to get a lift home, you just pull the phone out of your pocket and the car comes and finds you. But as we've been alluding to, these techniques can be used for good and evil. Now, we'll look at an example here that blurs the ethical line a little bit. So this online retailer has a laptop for sale for $1,500 after cashback. Now, you know you're paying $1,700 up front, but as long as you go through the process, you're going to get that $200 back. Now, ethically, this sounds okay, right? Well, it's not really that straightforward. So it turns out to get your rebate, you've got to fill in a big form, you've got to photocopy your receipt, you've got to jump through a whole heap of hurdles and then send it in to get that rebate. So while your motivation may be high, the ability to complete that action is low. And as such, it's likely that some buyers won't actually go ahead and fill out the, uh, go through the process and get their rebate, meaning greater financial returns for that retailer. Now, let's be clear here. This isn't a mistake. This is uh, consciously uh, designed to maximise purchases and minimise rebates through cognitive science. If they'd perhaps offered a $500 or $1,000 rebate instead, we may be altering that motivation factor enough to get a better success rate, meaning less sneaky profits. So now you can start to see how the motivation bit comes into play. It might be easier as a designer control to control the ability bit, but it's certainly not out of the question or impossible that we could also um, change the motivation a little bit through human psychology. So understanding what motivates people is the really powerful bit. And now if you cast your mind back to those dark pattern examples that we just showed, you'll realise that although they're outrageously dodgy, it's not just about the interface, but the way that those interfaces are put together in a response to a good understanding of human behaviour. That is, except for that LinkedIn example, that's just outright lying. Now let's have a look at a couple of examples of um, well-known uh, human behaviours that are commonly exploited in order to persuade. So first up is the idea of uh, our desire for completion and order. So staying focused, keeping active and being fit is a really hard behaviour to crack. The motivation might be there, but it's all too easy to kind of just put it off and go sit on the couch instead. So among the techniques that Fitbit employ to keep people motivated and staying active is their clever capitalisation of our desire as humans to want to kind of have things finished and put things in order. So just like some of you might get super excited, maybe a little too much, about achieving inbox zero, by adding little achievements that need to be completed, it kind of helps us, uh, like, sorry, like measuring 10,000 steps. It appeals to our natural tendency as humans to just want to kind of have that step completed. 
You're probably all familiar with this, but LinkedIn used this technique to great effect. So it has this completeness progress bar that you just kind of naturally feel compelled to want to complete. You want to get it finished to the 100%. And along the way, they kind of get you to add more information. Uh, and as Gareth said earlier at the start, um, we all have to be told an entertaining story or a joke. That emotional connection and the delight that you feel through things like humor is attractive. So, um, which then can in turn build trust and in turn motivation. Now I may be broadly generalizing here, but it's certainly not a stretch to assume that many of the guys in the room may not have been quite as motivated to track their partner's pregnancies as maybe their partners were. It was certainly very true of myself and I believe Gareth the same. Absolutely. Um, this app here is a, uh, it's called Who's Your Daddy and it's a pregnancy tracker specifically for men. And it makes great use of regular, well-written, humorous content updates that really kind of hook you in, and they do a brilliant job of keeping you motivated. Um, so Gareth uh, used this before his little baby boy Sam was born and kept just banging on about it for nine months. Sad but true. Um, and who amongst us doesn't like a present now and again? So the concept of variable rewards is a really powerful motivator that designers can use to increase user engagement. And it's the thrill of unpredictability that can really hook users in. So, the recent Pokemon Go craze is a perfect illustration of variable rewards in action. Now, is there anyone in the room that doesn't know Pokemon Go? I'm sure everyone does. But for those who don't, it's an augmented reality game that you play on your mobile phone. So it basically uses your phone's GPS and camera to help you uh, capture, train, and battle virtual creatures called Pokemon who appear on the screen as if they're in the same real-world location as you are. And in the game, there are 150-odd of these uh, Pokemon to collect, and the variable reward here is that you never know which ones you're going to find. Some are really, really rare, leading to lots of high fives in the Thirst Studios whenever uh, someone like Hemi here captured a uh, Pikachu. But it's the, the power of variable rewards and the effect that they have on people that make them one of the strongest tools in a designer's toolkit. However... Variable rewards do not have to be limited to games. There are lots of examples out there where the technique's been used to great effect. Think about Facebook and Tinder. Both of these applications use variable rewards. Facebook hook users by allowing them to endlessly scroll through posts to find the next amusing cat picture. And Tinder relies on the variable reward of the hotter potential mate being just one swipe away. So now you can start to see how some of these techniques uh, are really, really powerful and how they can create an overall experience. And the great thing about persuasive design is that uh, its influence has the potential to do more than just help us with our digital products. Coming back to Pokemon Go for a minute, it's a fantastic example of a product that has affected positive change. Not only has it delighted millions of people worldwide and increased Nintendo's share price, but it's also helping get lazy uh, lazy designers, potentially. Don't you lazy designers? Lazy, lazy designer gamers. gamers. Off the couch and out into the fresh air and getting some exercise. But, along with the positives, there have also been some unintended consequences of the design. So the app has been famously responsible for a huge number of negative incidents, like car crashes, people uh, getting run over, people walking into poles, and the occasional mugging. Thanks. And so that brings us neatly back round full circle all the way back through to Damien and his laptop 
and his expensive new adapter that he's bought, but still doesn't actually accommodate all of the cables that he needed to. Now, as we've explored today, us designers actually wield enormous power. But it's easy to forget that when you're um, deep at the coalface, buried in research findings and doing wireframes. So we want to take a moment to urge you to, to, um, to take a moment now and again to remember that it's not just about aesthetics um, and usability, but we actually shape the lives of people everywhere. Our design decisions can have quite significant impacts on the way that society behaves. And while it's very hard <coughs> as a designer to predict all of the effects of your designs, it's important to at least stop now and again to think about the wider implications wherever possible. So design is an evolutionary discipline. We don't invent stuff. We kind of learn from the past. And all of the designers practicing the craft here now, here today, like you guys, Gareth and myself, we're all setting an example for future generations. So don't always take the cheap, easy, dark patterns option. Understand that we do have great power, and we can use cognitive science to influence and persuade, but we really need to be mindful of respecting that power and make sure that we use it for good and not evil and think responsibly about everything that we do. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.